0: In the citizen tribunal system, the people are represented by two separate, yet equally important groups. The analysts, who investigate concepts, and the Luddites, who prosecute capital. These are their stories. Friends and enemies. It's episode 32 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, in in this week's free and premium episodes, we're going to kick off 2021 with a different spin on the standard New Year's resolution uh, by drafting what we're going to call the official TMK conceptual hit list. So this is this is going to be our list of key concepts in digital capitalism that we resolve to destroy. They have all been um, every concept we're going to talk about has all been to varying degrees corrupted by capital's foul influence and weaponized to achieve its own ideological and material goals. Now, some of the entries in our conceptual hit list are irredeemable they are too deeply enrolled in the service of capital, and thus must be compromised to a permanent end. While others that we're gonna talk about still might be saved, though not without some serious rehabilitation and reinterpretation. So we've talked about many of them before on TMK, but now is a good time to be really clear about the techno-political concepts that must be put up against the wall of ruthless criticism. Consider this the first draft of a conceptual hit list that has room to grow as we confront enemies, both old and new in 2021 and beyond. So fellas, let's kick down the door of the new year with guns blazing. Let's get on to the concepts then. we're gonna start kind of basic in these episodes just to to kind of build the foundation of what I imagine will be an occasional ongoing series, um, building out the TMK conceptual hit list. The plan is as we go, we'll describe and then kind of debunk each of the concepts that we'll talk about. And then we'll ask a critical question. Do we snuff it or do we save it? Let's just roll right into it. I think the first concept It's a foundational one, innovation. Mm -hmm. Ed, what do you think when you think of innovation?
1: You know, when we talk about innovation, usually innovation is deployed to talk about technology as if it has some inherent uh, characteristic about it. That technology inherently develops into something greater and larger than itself. And that it does this because it is... Technology develops into something that's larger, greater than itself, you know, because it is uh, inherently liberatory, it's inherently advanced, you know, like, usually, when you push against it, the reason why it is innovative, right? You come up into or you reveal quickly, you know, faith or dogmatic beliefs, right? The belief that Mm You know, for example, that technology will liberalize, you know, trade, that technology will lead to viable or dynamic economies. The idea that technology will lead to more free communication, that will lead to more spontaneous creation, that it will lead to more competition among firms, that it will lead to uh, developments that are more uh, desirable uh, for capitalists, you know, competing Uh, in marketplace for consumers or market share or profits. But as we'll talk about, you know, this is all in one way or another, a fetish, you know, not a kink, but, (laughs) you know, but the uh, the
0: only the only kink shaming (laughs) I'm down with is kink shaming the fetish of technology, the fetish of innovation.
1: Right, right. You know, David Harvey talks a bit about this, uh, this idea where, you know, there's a fetish where humans, you know, believe that, you know, real, sometimes imaginary objects have real powers within them, right? And that they move the world by simply existing or because of inherent traits to them. And when we, it's important to say that when we say there's a fetish about technology or innovation, we're not saying like technology never yields real consequences in the world. I mean, it's very obvious that technical systems change how people interact with one another, change what kind of you know, productive capacities we have, change what kind of political options are open. But there's a difference between saying that and then saying that uh, technology is going to be, it solves a political problem, that technology Mm -hmm. is what keeps the economy going, that technology is what's going to allow us to have a better life, right? A technical system is a tool at the end of the day. It's not like, it's not the, it's not where we should end our causal analysis. And that's where and the fetish comes in because people don't critically examine it.
0: That's right, yeah. So by fetishizing technology, and I think this is what we're really, when we're talking about innovation in this this kind of conceptual way, I think that's exactly what we're talking about is this kind of um, innovation as a fetishism of technology. And and I think you nailed it, right? Like part of that fetish um, is like endowing technology, and and not only technology, but every uh, new technology with this kind of like self-contained magical power to shape the world, right? Um, It's exactly what you were just saying, where it, it gives agency to the thing, to technology to innovation as if it's this like autonomous force in the world and then i think part of the fetish aspect so that that's like a pretty you know like very marxist idea of fetish right is that like alienates this object from history from uh human choices from social and cultural context and conditions right like separates all of that away it reifies it it alienates it and that's the kind of fetish but i do think you know you you made the 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 kink joke i do think there is actually a, a kind of understanding of the fetishism of technology um and in, of innovation in this kind of kink way as well where like people you know uh, people really have a fucking hard-on for innovation, yeah. right? It makes them excited. They want more and more of it. Um, they hold it up on this pedestal. It becomes not only the core driver of human history, but also, like, it's a subdom relationship, right? Like, we have to subjugate ourselves to the domination of
1: innovation you know and i think uh i think this is something that harvey does a really good job in this essay which if you want to check it out it's called the fetish of technology for listeners uh, causes and consequences you know he is trying you know one of the early uh, places he'll go, he goes to is marx's own you know discussions of technology right emphasizing you know as marx does right marx writes that technology discloses man's mode of dealing with nature The process of production by which he sustains his life, and thereby also lays bare the mode of formation of his social relations and of the mental conceptions that flow from them." Right? And so, in of this, it's not, technology does not determine, you know, the way in which people do those things, right? Technology can help structure it so that people, people go forth acting in one way or another on nature and on ordering production, right? But it is not that technology is the way in which they're discovering or determining the way or, or determining the way in which nature is going to interact with humans from now on, right? It's that mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a decision. It's, um, it's an arrangement. And then similarly, that technology is not like a, a thing that we come to and discover that was waiting for us in history and that we had to have the right amount of like knowledge and, and we had to do like a hard persuasion check, you know, to be able to unlock the secrets <laughs> of tech.
0: Yeah, like like Prometheus coming down from from right. Mount Olympus to to grant us the new iPhone, right? Right. Like. <laughs> Which, yeah. is, which is really how, I mean, this is how this kind of like fetishization of innovation actually, I, this is how people really do experience innovation though, is that like, you know, they experience innovation when the new iPhone lights up in, in the Apple store, right? And it seems to have come from nowhere, right? Like a right. gift granted from the gods of invention, um, rather than this thing that has a history, that has a context, and, and innovation as this concept, the fetishization of it as well, and it, it's this, like, a, this aspect that you were talking about with, like, granting an agency is that it becomes used as an excuse to mm-hmm. do anything, right? Anything is possible, um, anything is allowable, anything is permissible because it's innovative because it, right. because it's what innovation wants. It's what technology wants, right? Like that's that's that fetish aspect as well.
1: Yeah, and, it, and because of that, right, it obscures so many things, right? Technology is not simply, as you said, like a gift from the gods, you know, that they come and visit us every single year or two years at, at Apple product launch, you know? Like technology is in one way or another, interfacing with daily life and reproducing aspects of it altering ways in which we go through daily life, right? So it's a a technical system that's supposed to either order or alter behavior, right? It's also one that tells a story about what our relationship is to nature, right? As March talks about, I think his LinkedIn winners talked about what is the technical system? How's the, the technical system being developed in that? Is it, where is it extracting the resources from? Is it extracting resources or is it reusing resources? Um, there's also the question of like the social relations and what is it being used to amplify or promote or how is it being propagated to us? You know, how is it ordering the way in which we view the world? Uh, all of these things are, are obscured from the, the viewpoint of innovation, because, you know, as you again use the iPhone example, right? It is no doubt that each iteration of the iPhone has had some genuinely novel feature or development that has uh, been great for consumers, right? And maybe not as innovative as merging a phone with your music player, right? And your messenger, but iterative versions are still adding more and more features, right? So there's this sense of progress. There's a sense of marching towards some end destination. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it is hard to hear innovation as a progressive herald when each iteration is also continuing to use child slavery, right? Each iteration is using slaves, children's slaves in the Congo, and then also using uh, Chinese workers and in factories to construct at low, 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 lows, lowest possible cost devices that are then sold at you know, insane markups for profit of a company mm-hmm. that has more cash on hand than the U.S. treasury, right? So the question then is, like, what use is a narrative if, for example, we have an uh, if we abhor child slavery, if we abhor, you know, horrible working conditions that drive people to suicide, then what use is a narrative like innovation that obscures that and instead presents to us the beautified end result of all of that. Well, it's not for us, right? The innovative mm-hmm. uh, rhetoric is for systems and individuals who benefit from the, what goes on right now um, and who, are the, who reap the lion's share of the benefits. And it's not in their interest. It just does not do to consistently hammer on about uh, the, you know, dis- the spoiling of the ecology and the you know, enslavement of children and the mass commiseration mm-hmm. and suicide of workers. It does much better to talk about, oh, you know, because the iPhone 12 is a symbol of the ingenuity of humanity. It speaks to us about this, you know, whatever. What I don't even know what marketing ad copy Apple's on this <laughs> day, you know, but you know, it's, it's about you, you know, or it's it's about being different, but also the same and ahead, but also normal. And it, it, you know, all this nonsense is wrapped up in the innovative story. And it leaves out the reality of it, which is like for billions of people to have advanced technical systems is to have also advanced exploitative and extractive systems in their homes.
0: Yeah, the, the answer for the innovation fetishist the answer to any question is always innovation, right? It's like, right. it's like this tautology, right? Like we need innovation, why? Because it's innovative. Yeah, but why is it innovative? Because it's innovation, right? It's, it's this circular logic. And so, you know, the, the only questions they do ask is how, how can we do this thing? They never ask any other questions about like why, let alone questions like when or where, right? Like, like this is part of that fetishism is that it extracts the thing the entity, the object, the fetishized object from all history, all politics, all humanity. It it abstracts it away from all of that, which is why, you know, when I think when we want to think about the concept of innovation and this fetishization of innovation, for me, the place I always look to, to get a better understanding of like, where did this idea come from? When did it even arise, you know? Like, is it is, is something like technology or innovation really this like constant, uh, uh, th- th- this continual constant in human history? Like, you know, to add another, uh, you know, another reference, right? It's like, you know, 2001, A Space Odyssey, right? Like the monolith is coming down from, from the celestial bodies, and that's technology, right? When the monkeys touch the monolith, they've been endowed with technology, right. and that's supposedly the, the kickstart of all of human history is this history of, of, of the technological origins. But that is so ahistorical, and when we actually want to understand and debunk the fetishization of innovation, we have to ask historians, Right. All right. Tell us where this came from. Let's get a better context of this. And for me, the person I always look to um, to better understand the history of technology is weirdly another Marx, Leo Marx, a, a great historian. There, there, there needs to only be one Marx. All right. Like <laughs> we, we can't, we can't be having these multiple Marxes running around writing good shit about technology and politics and history.
1: <laughs> yeah, it gets confusing. There's so many it of gets them.
0: Confusing. (laughs) So for me, um, Leo Marx, who's a a great historian of technology uh, of America, uh, American history, has this essay that he wrote near the end of his life, really encapsulating a key point that motivated decades of his work. And of Mm -hmm. course, we're going to throw links to all this in the episode description. So you guys don't need to to worry about tracking that down right now. Um, But this essay is called Technology, the emergence of a hazardous concept. And he really lays out what, you know, something that I have even like forgotten. And that I was reminded of when I when I read this essay is that um, as, as, he, as he writes, quote, uh, This typical summary of human history from Stone Age tools to Ford cars illustrates the shared scientific understanding, circa 2010, of the history of technology. But one arresting, if scarcely noted, aspect of the story is the belated emergence of the word used to name the very rubric, the kind of thing that allegedly drives our history. The word is Technology. The fact is that during all but the very last few seconds, as it were, of the 10 millennia of recorded human history, the concept of technology as we know it today did not exist. So what he goes on to explain is that the way that we use technology now in this kind of more familiar, popular usage of the term, right, to talk about um, what he calls the mechanic arts in, in this kind of collective way, rather than... Um, as opposed to a more kind of like general branch or discipline of learning about useful arts and crafts. This idea, this conception of technology did not actually enter the popular lexicon until the 1930s. This concept is less than 100 years old. He says that technology in this, now, in this familiar sense of the word did not catch on in America until around 1900 when a few influential writers, notably Thorsten Veblen, And Charles Beard accorded technology a pivotal role in shaping modern industrial society. But even then, the use of the word remained largely confined to academic and intellectual circles. It did not gain truly popular currency until the 1930s. That is wild, right? Like that fact alone blows up this fetishization of innovation as this human constant and all of the recorded human history as the origins of humanity, as this kind of like arc of liberation. You know, you got, you got wild ass people like, um, like Kevin Kelly, who's one of the co-founders of Wired Magazine and his book, What Technology Wants. He literally traces just a linear straight line from the Big Bang to the Blackberry. You know, he's like, we can just trace the arc of human liberation as this lockstep march from the the conception of time space all the way up to uh, getting emails in your pocket. It's just a this linear is, march.
1: That is what Paul Atreides declared a jihad against in Dune. It was specifically that idea <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that machines were uh, a direct consequence of the Big Bang and not just like devilish creations by humanity i think it's also really interesting that with technical technology and this novel concept you see also see a lot of work being done elsewhere to like to bring it you know the sort of legitimacy that older concepts have by saying like you you know like in that book hey you know it goes back to physics man it goes back to objective Mm -hmm. hard sciences the big bang is an immutable fact of the, of the universe of reality, and and there are whispers of this uh, inevitable fact of reality in that Big Bang, and we, you just need to trust me to like you know read the scrolls and and translate the screens mm-hmm. into uh, like a, a coherent message, um, a whisper from the gods.
0: That's exactly right. It does have this biblical quality to it that you need these thought leaders, these clerics, these priests of innovation to yeah. to, yeah, like you said, read the scrolls to understand the natural workings of reality and lay it out, right? And, and then, I, of course, wrapped up in all of that is that if a concept like innovation is timeless then it's also something that you can't say no to. You can't confront it. You can't change it, right? right. The, the arc of history leads to uh, innovation, leads to progress, not justice, innovation. That's, that's mm-hmm. the real arc of human history. Right. And, and as Leo Marx shows in his essay, I mean, all of that is just bunk. If, if we can trace this concept back to just 90 years ago, that that's really new. I mean, this is something that capitalism has been really good at doing It's taking new systems and new concepts and making them feel like they are like ancient, like infinite, just mm-hmm. they, they, they've always been stable i mean capitalism is another one of these right that like you know this is this has only been a fact of human history for like 300 years not you know not three thousand, let alone three million years or whatever no
1: dude because um in mesopotamia they were um but no in uh greece they had uh, futures contracts you know <laughs> and options. they had they had a twinkle it was a twinkle in Aristophanes I can never say any of these names right because I never say them to another human being. Just read them. <laughs> but uh that's the hazard of podcasting. You yeah. gotta say
0: you gotta say shit out loud that you never say out
1: uh, loud. Yeah, or Socrates, I can pronounce that. Uh there's a twinkle in his eye, you know, uh, capitalism. That's actually that's uh Plato was trying to communicate that to us, but we weren't ready for it.
0: I mean, it's funny you bring up the Greeks because like the word technology as Leo Marx shows like the etymology of it is uh, of course Greek in origin but it's it's this combination of um, techne. So this kind of like arts and crafts this like knowledge about arts and crafts and ology, right? The study of of that thing. And, And that's what Leo Marx shows is that like, you know, that was how technology of course, the word technology was not like invented in the ni- in 1900 or 1930s, but it had a very different definition. It had a very different meaning um, previous to that, that very recent time period. It was just used as a way to describe these kind of useful mechanic arts, um, you know, learning about them, the skills involved, the knowledge involved. But now, but the fetishization of technology with this new conception of innovation, with this new concept of technology, is a way of of setting it apart, of of putting it on a pedestal, right? So like, you know, Leo Marx goes on to explain that... uh, You know the so like the origins of this modern concept of technology emerged out of inherently social and political motivations to put technology as a as a thing as a reified object on a pedestal. Uh, The the purpose of this new definition and usage, which you know as we've been saying has has become so naturalized and so his ah, ahistorical now was um, as Leo Marx explains in a longish passage that I think is worth reading. He says, quote. The need to replace the language associated with the mechanic arts and to identify, literally to name, a wholly new form of human power that the abstract and tangible, neutral, and fittingly synthetic idea of technology was destined to fulfill, whereas the term mechanic or industrial or practical arts calls to mind men with soiled hands tinkering at workbenches, Technology conjures clean, well-educated white male technicians in control booths, watching dials, instrument panels, or uh, computer monitors, whereas the mechanic arts belongs to the mundane world of work, physicality, and practicality of humdrum handicrafts and artisanal skills. Technology belongs on the higher social and intellectual plane of book learning, scientific research, and the university. The dispassionate word with its synthetic patina, its lack of a physical or sensory referent, its aura of sanitized bloodless, indeed disembodied separation and precision, has eased the induction of what had been the mechanic arts now practiced by engineers into the precincts of the finer arts and higher learning. Now, I like this because what Leo Marx is showing here is that by like this concept of technology and here we're also wrapping into that this kind of, you know, innovation as the, you know we're defining it as this kind of fetishization of technology. Right. So what Leo Marx is showing here is that like there was a lot of this kind of just like discursive work going on um, to kind of separate out to reify to objectify technology innovation as a concept that can only be uh, accessed by Um, an elite group of people that are highly educated, um, high high in the social hierarchy, uh, you know, have power over through innovation, through technology, have power over everybody else, over the shape of human history and society.
1: It makes me think again of, you know, uh, Gray Burch's argument in Imperial San Francisco, where he's kind of, trying to to lay out how integral mining was and how mining, you know, historically has always been a really dirty, bloody enterprise that has punishment that was, uh, you know, for crimes or, you know, the work of slaves, um, but necessary for empires to build and necessary for them to grow. And as a result, there were always attempts by empires to both emphasize the mineral wealth and resources of mining as virtuous and divine or otherworldly, right? But then the mining pits themselves as hellish holes, you know, as Tartaruses on earth. One of my favorite passages is like talking about how Pluto's, right? You know, is not simply just like the God of the underworld, but like of smoke, of, the, of, a, of a landscape that is a mine, you know, smoke pits, mm. fiery abysses, uh, just hellish holes where people are clamoring out, murdered in, in dirt in the earth, and also of exploitation and of plutocracy and of all these other evils and ills that we lose in the sanitized versions or the sanitized retellings of empire about mines or mining, right? And of technology. And I think, you know, in San Francisco, right, there was this effort to do that by creating mining journals and creating, you know, mining enterprises where scientific uh, research was incorporated to advance mining technology that was then used and applied to the city at large uh, to create skyscrapers, to create better trolley systems. And it also came in the other hand of a rhetorical and a cultural rehabilitation of the miners, virtuous. as more important than the farmer as a hero, as an adventurer, as a pioneer. Um, when in reality, it was a very bloody, very exploitative, very consumptive and sacrificial enterprise and endeavor uh, that was being Held up for the ends of like speculators who were convincing people that like the best days of gold mining in California were well ahead of them, even though they were they had been past a decade, two decade, a century ago. You know, I see that. I think Leo Marx touches on that as a key part of the technology discourse, right? Which is, mm-hmm. you have to erase relations. You have to erase the work of culture. You have to erase erase the work of ideology, and you have to make this something that fills a void, right? And becomes as human as like searching for meaning, you know, or the, these creative arts of philosophy. Right? It's not. It's not that um, technology is a technical system that's developed so that like very specific people and very specific industries can benefit from them. It's that humans are always searching for better ways to automate things. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that's. Uh, driving and sometimes that's delivery of goods and services and sometimes that's, you know, digital systems, but it's always there and it's always been there across history when it hasn't and it's bullshit.
0: Yeah, exactly. And and it's noteworthy and it's not a coincidence as Leo Marx kind of wraps up his essay explaining is that this concept of technology gained currency during the incorporation of America, during the rise of the American enterprise of corporations, right? That like the logic here is that this kind of like retrospective um, application of technological, this adjective to a whole range of other activities and systems throughout human history, this kind of backcasting of this concept of innovation across human history, um, you know, is completely congruent with uh, these kinds of Expansionary profit-making enterprises, technology, and innovation become a justification for the incorporation of everything. Right, that like the concept of technology um, and corporate capitalism go hand in hand together. They helped create each other. Right, right? And, and we and we can't lose that history. But that's exactly what the fetishization of innovation does: is it wants us to lose that history. It wants us to not even know that that history exists, you know, because it, it's, it's just an inanimate, you know, it's these inanimate objects, these machines that we treat as causal agents, um, as a way to uh, divert our attention from the deeply human, socioeconomic, and political relations that are responsible for the kind of upheaval um, that is then, you know, Granted, as actually just a cause and effect
1: of innovation. Right. A simple test, you know, with the gig economy, is it that Uber and Lyft, DoorDash and Postmates, Instacart, and the rest of, you know, the unholy uh, coalition, is it that they have created a novel good or service or rad- radically improved quality of a good and service? Or is it that The technology is a cover for the return of an old form of work, piecework, right? Which is illegal, Mm -hmm. right? You can look at the prices, you can look at the wait times, you can look at the premiums that consumers pay, at the uh, wages that uh, drivers get and couriers get, and you see that there isn't much innovation in the sense of radically better wait times, radically better Uh, cost to uh, customers and radically better pay for delivery driver securities. And in fact, on all counts, it's worse in a lot of instances, right? But it's still sold as as an innovation. What's the innovation that's going on? The innovation that's going on is that subpar suboptimal in the language of you know market uh, suboptimal arrangement uh, a system is allowed to pay drivers and carriers subminimum weight rates, uh, rates collect premiums as high as 110 percent increase traffic congestion pollution and also expose drivers to health ca- health risk injury risk uh, you know violence uh, sexual assault uh, harassment, and can do it without legal liability. That's the innovation. And so, and often in many instances, innovation is not really the emergence of a tr- genuinely novel technical system. It's mm. what we should understand innovation as, which is the sh- alteration or the disruption, right? Another buzzword of a pre existing status quo that didn't advantage a narrow group, right? And by mowing it down, this technical system, this technology is. More free to have more agency in its myths and its narratives and its control over our lives and in the way and the in the credit that people assign to it uh, for positive changes and in the blame it's allowed to redirect for negative outcomes.
0: Counselor, that is my that is my case. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> bang the gavel. All right, now the now now the jury speaks. Do we with the concept of innovation? Do we snuff it or do we save it? Snuff. Snuff. Thumb yep. down. Thumbs 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 down. <laughs> innovation as a fetish deserves to be snuffed. We have to eliminate it from our discourse, from our thinking. It is a poison because all it does is it distracts us. Uh, from actually understanding the the real relations and the real conditions um, out of which these technologies and these quote-unquote innovations actually arise, distracts us from asking questions about why and for whom, when and where, right? It distracts us from all of these questions because that is what fetish does. It reifies, it objectifies, it alienates, and all it does is it just leads to, you know, poor thinking and and even worse outcomes. Innovation, you are crossed off the conceptual hit list, uh, snuffed. Guilty. You you gave us a great segue, Ed, to our next next entrant on the conceptual hit list here. Disruption, the cousin of innovation, often Mm -hmm. going hand in hand now with innovation. But disruption as its own little thing, Tell us a little bit about the wonders of disruption.
1: You know, I'm going to go back uh, to my favorite company in the world, Uber, Um, (laughs) disruption. In the early days, Uber pitched itself as a disruptive enterprise because it was using an app to connect anybody to anyone who had a car and wanted to drive for them. Whereas typically, uh, ride-hail systems were taxi-based with medallions and licensing requirements and strict adherence to insurance and other safety regulatory concerns. So the disruption is this stagnating, bureaucratic, you know, creaking, groaning system that artificially limits the supply of drivers and thus tapers off the demand that everyone has for a private form of transportation. And so you just you blow that shit up, you disrupt it, you let the innovation you know bust all over the place, and everybody's going to want to ride <laughs> hail. And I think, as we've talked about, if you understand innovation as just really a wrecking, as a narrative that provides cover for a wrecking ball, where you re, you're smartly reordering the status quo to benefit yourself, to make it a sort of to make your own devastation, you know, take on a theological aura. Then disruption is just like another way to justify to the people getting smashed that this is inevitable and it's good. Actually, the boot that's clamping mm-hmm. down on your on your face is actually good. It's good that Uber cuts you your. You love rates. it. You love. Yeah, it. <laughs> you love this shit, don't you? Love. Uh, Being your own boss when you get a sub minimum wage, don't you love uh, doing your own taxes when we uh, over and over and over again steal uh, from you uh, and and commit wage death and get sued for it over and over again? So you're not really sure how much you got paid. Don't you love being egged on to stay on for as many hours as possible to qualify for bonuses that don't actually meet your needs uh, to make ends meet? Don't you love that? That's disruption. Disruption is, is the ability uh, or should be better understood as the ability of a corporation or a private entity to gain more agency or autonomy over you and to cleave you off from support systems and protections that would otherwise protect that, you know, prevent exploitation of you.
0: Yeah, hey, n- exactly. Disruption. I mean, if we trace it back, right, like, like the the, this kind of like Disruptive innovation, this idea of disruption coming out of uh, kind of economic theories from, from Schumpeter, right, around like creative destruction, right, basically talking about, uh, or, or even like Marx, right, talking about the, the constant revolution in the modes of production, you know, Karl Marx, not Leo Marx this time. Let's get straight <laughs> on that. Um, but so so like this idea of disruption has this history and these kind of analyses of the operations of capital as this kind of constantly moving, revolutionizing, uh, a, a simultaneously the dialectic of a creative and a destructive force all at once, right? What disruption has done um, is it, it's, it's weaponized those ideas of... Uh, of creative destruction, which, you know, which in Schumpeter, when he was talking about it, right, he was trying to describe like, a, like how capital operates, but also in, in a way as a, a, you know, trying to lay the groundwork for th- this excuse making for the destructive impulses of capital. When When Marx talks about the constant revolution in the modes of production, he, you know, he's not talking about it in this way that like, oh, isn't this, isn't this dynamism like really awesome? Isn't it, isn't it great? Like he has a, a kind of uh, a respect for, for that force, but a respect in the sense that you have a respect out of, out of any force that could completely throw your life into disarray, that could throw you into the gears of some new machinery, right? It's more of a, a, a respect and, and an awe at the, at the sheer power of it and and then and because of that an acknowledgement that we have to rein that power in that we have to control that power whereas you know when this gets bastardized as uh, disruption this concept of disruption what they want to do is they want to control you know companies like uber these tech companies these you know thought leaders in silicon valley the people And about disruption and the the wonders of disruption they on one hand want to use it as this kind of autonomous force um as a perfect excuse to say well like you know all all we're doing is we're just you know we're just riding the wave of disruption baby like you know that's just that's just the mode that's just how capitalism operates and and you gotta you gotta hop on the train or get run over so they want to use it as this excuse that it's just like this this train that's barreling down upon you, while also masking the fact that they're the conductor of the train, right? They, they are actually, you know, they, they, they can pump the brakes or they can shovel coal into the engine, right? They can change tracks if they want to. Uh, but but they, they, they want to use disruption as a way of shrugging any responsibility for the destruction and the disarray that they cause.
1: Yeah, you know, disruption ends up just being it's a lie, you know, it's a it's a lie that you can you it's better to think of a lot of these tech companies when they are saying that they're disruptive. I mean, it's language that they backed off of more or less, but a lot of them, you know, are they're offering disruption as a service because it's pretty much a way for them to undermine the status quo undermine a public good or service and, and put themselves in good position to uh to suck the blood up literally you know essentially yeah, or, i mean parasites. in the case of peter field to literally suck blood up because uh, <laughs> he's a vampire allegedly <laughs> and uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it's it's important to think of you know what you know the ways in which things are really disruptive always like again you know with the the, the our archetypal example of the iPhone is the iPhone disruptive because like, is the iPhone X that much more disruptive than the iPhone max? What was before it, whatever the fuck was before it. <laughs> uh, is it, is that iPhone more disruptive? Yeah, not really, except in the way in which it probably got more ch- child slaves, right? You know, like mm-hmm. is it, or has it in continued to allow child slaves or actually, Apple shells might push back against this and say, Well, they don't actually uh, use child slaves. They have subcontractors who they review and sometimes these subcontractors subcontract firms who have child slaves. So that's it, that's disruptive, right? right? Because now you know, now you've created a new arrangement in which child slavery has to go through weird contracting. You have to contract your slaves out to a contractor who will contract them to you.
0: Um, that's disruptive. And that's think, that's disruptive innovation
1: right, right. there. Subcontracting
0: Disrupt- to subcontractors.
1: Is automating facial recognition, is facial recognition technology and client prediction uh, disruptive? It's not really disruptive in the sense that like, you know, police have always Uh, relied on biases and racist historical, uh, racist historical sets of data to preempt crime, it is disruptive in that it will allow more people to go to jail. And, you know, so this disruption is usually, you know, not in the way that it's being presented. It is disruptive, but to like the lives of people who are made invisible through the innovation.
0: myth. Right. I, I like calling it out, calling disruption out as a lie, because more often than not, it is actually just a continuation of the status quo, quite literally the opposite of disruption. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There's this there's this like new speak going on where you you use the word disruption to actually mean the status quo. And we can see this to a degree, I think you're right that like the terminology of disruption, you know, some of these Silicon Valley types have been backing off of it a little bit. Although at the same time, the, the real ideologues here in like the venture capitalists and the startup founders, they're still using disruption constantly. Um, I'm thinking of particularly a space where you see the word all the time now is in fintech, right? Which is having its moment right now. Fintech is having a moment. And I got mm-hmm. in this little, um, this little spat with a venture capitalist, as as we are wont to do, uh, <laughs> and, you know, basically calling out fintech for what it is, which is it's predatory lending by another name, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's again it's that continuation of just new it's it's disruptive in the sense that it's just new mechanisms, new uh, new new methods for doing things like redlining, for doing things like payday loans, for, you know, for all of these kind of predatory practices. You know, a venture capitalist jumped in my mentions and was like, no, actually, you know, th- this is this is dis- disrupting legacy financial institutions and, right. and disrupting incumbents and blah, blah, right. blah. The <laughs> fact is, is that the people that are dumping all the money into these markets don't actually understand how these markets work because they're so blinded by this ideology of disruption, by these tenants of disruption. And, you know, I come back at them. You actually look at the data around fintech uh, investment, around the growth of fintech startups, and most fintechs right now are actually in the business of providing services to incumbents. That's not disruption, right? They are just, again, as you were saying, they're just subcontractors. They're just vendors for uh, large global financial institutions and then if they're lucky they become acquired and get to be these little like skunk works working in the basement of Goldman Sachs producing new disruptive ways to do payday lending you know so it's like the ideology of disruption, Even to the people whose supposed job is to understand how these markets work, to pump venture capital into these markets, to nurture and grow these little startups and these little baby founders, don't actually understand how these markets work because they don't need to. They don't want to understand how they actually work. They want to believe in the myth of disruption.
1: Yeah, you know, I think fintech is also a really perfect example because, you know, there's a lot of, like, muttering and you know, about all this, uh, about the future of uh, financial uh, tech startups um, and how they're going to disrupt big banks, you know. But, I mean, you know, let's take, you know, 2019, like, right, the largest banks, the... The decrepit old guard, right? We're spending billions of dollars on tech, specifically on developing the same sorts of technologies that payday loan, that these predatory payday loan um, startups are doing, right? Citigroup spent $8 billion, uh, Wells Fargo $9 billion, Bank of America $10 billion, Morgan, $11 billion. Uh, these are figures also that the tech giants spend on tech. Right. The largest spenders in the United States on tech are banks and tech firms uh, and Mm -hmm. Walmart, you know, and these these companies, they have AI teams. They have fintech campuses themselves. Right. They're they're on the cutting edge of all of this. So to to then step back and say, OK, so what is like actually going on here? You then see that. All right. A lot of the money is also being spent on maintaining these large legacy systems. Right. Mm -hmm. They're spending like billions of dollars on mergers, on. On, on, on databases, on ensuring that they can scale them properly, ensuring that they can invest uh, invest into new systems after consolidating them. This might explain part of the tech spend. And then that might lead someone to say, okay, maybe fintech is actually disrupting it, right? But then again, you step back and one more time and you look at what fintech is doing. Fintech is spending, you, your fintech is worth well over a hundred billion or has, you know, hit well over a hundred billion in terms of investments. Right. And the reason why is because, it, you know, there's a promise of profits that are going to be equitable to the established banks right now, you know, that are, you know, do, do tens of billions of dollars in profits, which are you know, numbers only really matched by tech companies. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hope there is that they can do it without these banks Uh, costs for legacy uh, systems and for scaling upwards and for maintaining their databases, right? That if it's some small nimble startup that they can disrupt a giant. Is there any evidence that that's happened or that these firms are just simply going to consolidate and and acquire and, you know, drive out of the uh, competition, uh, the fintech startups? And what we've seen is no, 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 no real fintech uh, usurper. And instead just the incorporation of this technology into these large banks, which are already spending tens of billions of dollars, you know, to, to, to make sure that they are in a position to do that in the first place. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, if it's not disruption, right? The fintech is not disrupting anything. Fintech is just allowing for a new face of the system. And it will end up just becoming another story of innovation, which is which will just end up being the new story of how JP Morgan was able to return to even more predatory loans. And how Bank of America and Wells Fargo and Citigroup were able to return to more predatory loans because now they can use your data to pinpoint your creditworthiness. Not mentioning that your data is your biometric data, it's your online data, it's whatever the fuck else they can, you know, collect and consolidate it to a profile. That's and it's, right. That, it's not and- disruption.
0: It's not. What we see now is, though, as well, that the, the real consequences of disruption are to actually, you know, not, as you say, like, create these new innovative uh, technologies that overcome the slow-moving incumbent, blah, 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 blah. The real consequences of disruption are to throw into disarray the lives and the livelihoods of millions, billions of people. Around the world, I came across this article in Quartz that was super interesting to me, um, called "Why Chinese Youngsters Are Embracing a Philosophy of Slacking Off," and this this essay is great. I mean, not only because it 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 called to mind a lot of things we talked about in Sabotage, where like you know, there's just kind of like in the younger generations, like the millennials, the Gen Z, and um, uh, or Gen-Z, sorry, my Australian was showing. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, uh, you know, in, in, in China are starting to push back against this kind of, uh, these national dreams, right? When we see these national economic dreams, whether it's the American dream, the Chinese dream, there's all, there's an Australian dream, like all these nations have this dream of basically, you know, this idea that if you just work really, really hard, um, then you too can get a slice of the pie, right? You too can own a home and own a car and go on international holidays and you know get all the, the kind of trappings of, uh, of of a of a good middle class Leave It to Beaver style life. And that that in just like in how that is obviously not the case in the U.S. That is also um, for many of the younger generations that dream has been deflated. In China as well, and what you see is this kind of uh, um, this article lays out this this kind of resurgence of what we talked about in our sabotage and luddite episodes of um of a kind of a mass withdrawal of productivity and industrial efficiency, where you know these younger generations are are just uh, you know they're reclaiming their time and their energy, they're not working their you know themselves to death because they're not seeing the returns in it because those dreams have been disrupted, right? Those are dreams that have been left to die because, and that's the effect of widespread disruption in the economy. Um, and, and so this essay presents a, a really interesting concept um, for why this is the case. So to quote says, the intense anxiety felt by younger people and exacerbated by the pandemic prompted a wider discussion on a once niche academic concept, nijuan. Translated as involution, the anthropological term was first applied to agriculture and has come to describe conditions in which a society ceases to progress and instead starts to stagnate internally. Increased output and competition intensify, but yield no clear results or innovative technological breakthroughs. And that is what we see coming from disruption is stagnation.
1: When you're being presented right with like a very clear cut seemingly clean idea right to ask where it's coming from who's using it first of all who's using it and why Mm -hmm. are they using it and what purpose is it serving because you know as we thought about technology is a new concept so when people start speaking about things inherent to it in its nature, as a part of its characteristics, um, natural to it, or to the subject of the category, you gotta ask who is doing the, what's doing the work there? Like, why is that idea being painted that way? and Who does it benefit and what does it overlook? Because as you'll see here, you know, um, these are things where they, because they end up being or recreated or reframed as natural right? They're used as a hammer to just cut through, smash through anything that's in the way at great cost to all the human beings there. And you end up with this you know, sort of situation where you have this involution that's happening among the uh, Chinese youngsters, right? Where or a discussion of evolution right where it's like you know there's 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 no progress right there's stagnation even in the midst of an economic boom or even in the midst of incre- improving economic conditions right even mm-hmm. though all the ticks are being hit for capitalist development there's increased output as uh, competition you know there's more goods and services gdp growth, blah 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 you know all of that um all of those things are being achieved there are no clear breakthrough moments right and also it speaks to in a larger sense this obsession with the mechanical and the uh, you know smothers pursuits of creative or artistic or spiritual endeavors i think it was um there's an earlier quote that leo marx referenced um by henry thoreau in in Mm walton where he was saying like our inventions are want to be pretty toys which distract our attention from serious things they are but improved means to an unimproved end Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of the time the end the end that is always presented is like more right more stuff more things uh more efficiency more automation more access more choice more consumption um and all of those things are empty meaningless and really again just for the end of like the person producing or the group of people investing in the production of these things um It's an unimproved end because we're still not talking about, okay, but like to what end? You know, like what's, how's that going to help? What, like, what is this doing to help people at all? You know, besides give them more access to consumption and more access to like private uh, goods and services, which wreck everything else at huge cost.
0: And and more and more that access is also being limited and also being reduced. Capitalism has a tendency to overproduction. It is the ultimate machine um, in human history for producing, for accumulating. Mm. The, that is the whole foundation of the kind of trickle-down um, economics. That the dream that, like, as long as we can, as long as capital continues to accumulate, continues to produce new goods and services, this endless supply of, uh, or the, you know, this endless supply of supply, uh, then then we will uh solve the problems of scarcity and and all of those goods will trickle down like manna from the heavens to everybody else and that's that's the promise of disruption as well but but never do they ask questions about distribution who's being disrupted who's doing the disruption who's benefiting who's uh immiserated by the disruption. Those questions of distribution are never questions that capital asks, be, uh, not because it doesn't think about distribution. All capital does is think about distribution, right. but they don't raise those questions because they don't want you to ask those questions of right. distribution. You know, right. They would rather let the vaccines expire than hand them out to people. Mm. They would rather let food rot in the ground than feed hungry people. They would mm. rather let capital, unimaginable amounts of wealth idle in the bank accounts, uh, in the, the Treasury vaults of Apple, of Google, of these companies that have massive reserves. They'd rather let that idle than hand it out to people or invest it for people. Those questions, that's, that's what disruption actually looks like, is it looks like a stagnation for the many um, for the sake of progress of a few.
1: Right. And like all these myths that we'll go through, it's again, as you said, and put it well the big, at the end, you know, distraction for the many so that, you know, you can get presents for the few. Uh, this is all these myths are just bullshit, you know, <laughs> innovation, <laughs> disruption. They are two. They're both their faces of the same many sided die that we'll be going through um, that mm-hmm. we've been going through, which is like, how do we create a legitimacy narrative that justifies a system where the lion's share of benefits perks comforts uh, resources autonomy agency uh any real benefit go to a narrow group of people and then everyone else is given ancillary stuff i mean yeah you know it is nice to have some of these advanced technical consumer electronics right you know they're nice they're cool i it's want house of fire you yeah, know? it's a pacifier, <laughs> right? I want, I want healthcare. I want a functional public transit system. I want housing for people. I want food security. I want things that are put to the side because instead of focusing on these unimproved, on what is to, the, to this day an unimproved then, because we don't you know, focus on it. Instead, we're saying, oh, technology is the thing that we need to develop because technology will allow us to develop the capacity to provide for those things, which again, obscuring the fact that technology in of itself is a fake concept or a a relatively new concept that's used to obscure the relations, right? The, the, The political decisions, the cultural, you know, biases or frameworks that are coming into something, the ideological work, all of the, you know, violence that goes on here and overseas, to achieve a status quo, which benefits a few at the cost of many. The technology obscures that, innovation obscures that, disruption obscures that, and then we are told that if it's not working for us, then you know, fuck off.
0: You've hit the nail on the head again, Ed, where this is about creating a legitimacy narrative and a legitimacy myth for capital, for uh, this continual immiseration. Judge, I rest my case on the question of disruption. Jury, do we snuff it or do we save it?
1: Guilty. (laughs) That shit goes.
0: Thumbs down. That shit goes down because we do not need disruption in the sense of changing, you know, minor changes within the bounds of capital, within the bounds of uh, of a predetermined distribution of goods and services and wealth. We do not need disruption that just simply empowers systems and, the, and, and continues the status quo. Uh, we throw disruption down the well because and replace it instead with what we need is a revolution of the means of production of the distribution of goods and services. Not a disruption, a revolution of those things. Disruption. Get enough the fuck out. All right, let's move on then to our next entrant in the conceptual hit list: entrepreneurship. Okay. Now, this is something we've talked a lot about in our episode with Vina, mm-hmm. um, Vina Dubois. I highly recommend everybody check that out. So that this this entrepreneurship, with as with a lot of these concepts that we're going through. Um, because they are, the purpose of them is um, largely to create this kind of legitimacy myth to reify the the systems that exist to naturalize them. You know, they, of course, work in tangent with each other. They're choreographed. So entrepreneurship oftentimes goes hand in hands with the same kind of companies that talk about disruptive innovation, right? But let's drill down on this idea of entrepreneurship. What does entrepreneurship mean to you, Ed?
1: Entrepreneurs are rugged in individuals at the forefront of opportunity, pioneers in the wasteland in the Wild West of the, the economy, the digital in, you know, era, looking to you know, survey the land and stake out a claim that they can develop their enterprise on. That's, you know, entrepreneurs are heroes of, uh, of American industry, <laughs> of American finance, you know, and honestly, they're the only thing that is uh, keeping us going, you know, because if it weren't for entrepreneurs, uh, then <laughs> how would you have anything? You wouldn't have goods, you wouldn't have services, you wouldn't have enterprises, you wouldn't have corporations, you wouldn't have the laws that ensure uh, fair trade, free trade. Uh, you wouldn't have laws that ensure that, you know, you can exchange things without the threat of violence. You know, you wouldn't have markets, you wouldn't have courts, you wouldn't have the pillars of American society, Western civilization and, and human and human society. You know, so I think entrepreneurs are the heroes, the heroes. The hero. This is the hero's journey. This the, human history is the hero's journey. It's the, it's the entrepreneur's journey. Sorry. That's exactly
0: right. So the entrepreneur is, uh, is the subject of digital capital, right? That is a subjectivity that digital capitalism seeks to to nurture and to develop and to embed in all of us, it is these entrepreneurial ideals and these no. entrepreneurial ways of living, um, I, I, again, as a way of creating legitimacy for, for just beating people down, right? What you do is you put the responsibility on the person. Well, you just weren't entrepreneurial enough. Right? Well, you just weren't hustling enough. You weren't just grinding enough. All these other little buzzwords, these little, these little toxic words that we that we now associate with the marketing copy of uh, all these platforms, like hustle, grind. I wake up and my breakfast is a coffee, and my lunch is the is the is the program that I'm crunching. You know, it, it's all it's all that that kind of language. What? But what that is trying to do in a very neoliberal way um, is create. What Foucault called the entrepreneur of the self, right? That like you need to be entrepreneurial in every aspect of your of your work, of your life, of everything, because you need to be doing the the nine nine six. Um, you know, schedule right. You need to be working from nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week, and and that's just bare minimum. That's just bare minimum. There's so many other hours in the week that you could be yeah. that you could be grinding, that you could be hustling, right? I'm not a businessman, in the words I'm, of Jay Z. I'm a businessman. <laughs> <laughs> that is the entrepreneur, right? And 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 we know we know this is a fucking toxic way of living, a toxic way of conceiving of human life, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also the excuse used um, in, for example, another thing that we talked a lot about with Veena, Proposition 22. That was all based on this idea of entrepreneurship, right? That like, you don't have workers, you don't have employees, you've got a whole coterie of entrepreneurs, who are individuals, right, it's the libertarian ideal. There's no such thing as society. There's no such thing as employees. There's no such thing as any of this collective nonsense. There's only the
1: person, the entrepreneur. Right, you know, and I think a really instructive example, I think is, you know, the 1990s Koch brothers deregulation campaign, right? So in the 1990s, and I think this is important because it prefigures Uber's campaign, but in the 1990s, the Koch Brothers Bank rolled a massive effort in about 17 cities to try to deregulate taxis. right? And the argument there was that, look, there's actually, um, if you look at the data, if you, if you believe in economics, Right. Um, You'll see that taxi deregulation is in the interest of everybody because to have a regulated system doesn't meet the local and individual needs of a community. Um, And so as a result, we need to make it more efficient, more optimal for market competition. When in reality, what they wanted was privatization. Right. The think tank campaign in the 1990s was um, like an effort where they basically had, I mean, straight up like objectivists, like they just had objectivist Randians, you know, uh, groups who were getting funding from Charles and David Koch, from the Reason, from Institute of Justice, a bunch of these, you know, uh, ghoulish, uh, dark money, uh, far right wing, uh, free the engine of the market from state laws, um, ghouls advocating for something called, you know, the Liberty Principle, the idea that like only a very, very, very narrow range of government activities were legal. Um, and they had to be ones that did not infringe on the liberty of individuals or of collectives like of individuals especially in the domain of economic or activities or voluntary exchanges, right? Um, And so they published a lot of papers that were trying to say, look, like um, you need to stop thinking about this from an efficiency consumer standpoint, right? You need to think about it as a black and white battle, us versus them, like a tribal conception, very like Western, in the way that Westerners would deployed tribal as pejorative, like they were trying to construct a debate where um, it was simply entrepreneurs as the heroes mm-hmm. of this story, right? And entrepreneurs were thought of as, you know, in this instance, struggling immigrants um, who wanted to embrace the free market. I mean, that's why they came to America in the first place. Um, and that, that would transform taxi service and bring it into the into the new era and in reality this was a vision entirely bankrolled by billionaires right and Mm -hmm. it was about them having more corporate freedom to dominate control organize and order the industry right and they successfully used the story of the entrepreneur to their advantage, right? They were able to say, look, regulation prevents entrepreneurs from making a living, helping their family, their, uh, limits their opportunities, it destroys their dreams of America. But the, the reality is that the regulations didn't do any of that, right? You know, regulations were there in to ensure that they would have minimum wages, that they would have insurance, that they would have, you know, comp- enough compensation, enough money in theory to make ends meet, and that it was the changes over time to undermine the regulations to make them be able to classify as contractors, to make them have to cover the cost of uh, the vehicle or cover the cost of insurance or cover the cost of licensing themselves. It was all of, or fuel, it was all these uh, innovations, these reforms to regulations that made them more and more precarious, right? And so mm-hmm. we see that this narrative emerges where it's like the heroic entrepreneur, the corrupt regulator. You see it a lot in Ayn Rand shit, right? I mean, there's one of the most cartoonish images I always will never forget is like one of the characters throwing a tax collector down the fucking stairs
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> to kill them. Uh, because they're a tax collector. They're evil. I mean, like what? You, you, you should kill them. You know, if, if something offends your eye, pluck it out, you know, that's like the ethos mm. that this sort of uh, narrative has. And so the entrepreneur ends up being as all these other myths end up being, um, a sledgehammer that you can use to deploy in any way you see fit. You want to get rid of regulations that are preventing you from realizing more profit. Well, you're fucking over the entrepreneur smash. You know, yeah. do you want to introduce uh, laws that will prevent competitors from entering your market so that you can dominate it? Uh, you're undermining the abil- the opportunities of entrepreneurs smash. You got it. Do you want to insulate yourself from criticism from labor act- activists Uh, who are concerned about whether or not you're paying the workers adequately. Um, These entrepreneurs don't want to be employed. They want to be their own boss. Smash. I mean, like, you know, this is what they were doing then. That's what's happening now. Entrepreneurship is more often than not people who are exploiting workers, turning around and using them to justify even further exploitation because things are so bad by their design. That's right.
0: You've you've really hit how... This idea, this dream of entrepreneurship, has been weaponized by these, yeah, by the Koch brothers, by the Cato Institute, by these libertarian think tanks and billionaires. Right? They've weaponized this this dream of entrepreneurship, and you can understand how people would latch onto that. Right? They would latch onto it in the sense that I I want to be self made. I want to have control. Over my life, I want to have autonomy uh, over how I work and what I do. I want to have uh, the means to make it on my own. I want—I I don't want to be beholden to an employer, a boss, a manager who's going to exert uh, a despotic discipline over my entire life. Because no, I'm the entrepreneur, right? I—I—I I, I am the—I uh, am the powerful self. That can that can break free of these uh, structures of power and domination and control. That's the myth, and you can you can you can understand how people would latch onto that, right? And especially as you mentioned, and and so much um, research and like ethnography of. Uh, these kind of like, you know, these these immigrant communities who do come to America with dreams of entrepreneurship to, you know, whether it is to own their own taxi, to own their own small business, to, you know, to be able to make ends meet on their own, um, by their own metric, by their own desires. And, and instead, I, I think this is the, uh, you know, not only has kind of this, this neoliberal capitalism inculcated this entrepreneurial subjectivity in people, which is, is a, a method of squeezing more value out of people. It's a method of causing people to feel like they need to work that 12 hours, six days a week just to make ends meet. I think that the the really sad aspect of the way that entrepreneurship has been weaponized is the way that it's been used to completely immiserate the dreams of these vulnerable and marginalized groups who are fed this idea of entrepreneurship, who, are, who have it dangled in front of them like bait. And then when they go to, to, to bite at the apple, they're hooked, right? They're, they're hooked into um, and thrown onto the paddleground as kind of foot soldiers for this deregulation, uh, for the interest of billionaires. They're thrown into the machines, right? Yeah, of course, the, the, the grind hard, hustle hard, work hard uh, subjectivity of entrepreneurship leads to burnout. It leads to a really awful and toxic way of living, of relating to other people, of uh, organizing, or in many uh, ch- uh, cases, not being able to organize your own time and exercise your own autonomy. But the way that it has been used to do that to the most marginalized uh, and victimized and vulnerable groups in society while also feeding them a dream, feeding them hope as a way to just constantly um, drag them along, to drag them through the capitalist machine. I think to me, that is something that makes me the most upset about mm-hmm. this concept of entrepreneurship, is the way that it has been weaponized as a, as a way to immiserate, um, while at the same time giving hope to, um, hope that will never be actualized um, in most cases to, uh, to these groups of people.
2: And we didn't even touch on what multi-level marketing shit does to people too. this. You know, basically, you could just encompassed everything that they do in those last few words that you said, but it's just, it's mind boggling. They have all these rise and grind people. They'll send messages to people they haven't spoken to in 20 years on Facebook. Hey, how are you doing? The next line you get is, hey, uh, are you interested in some yoga pants? (laughs) I got got dragged
1: into one of those MLM things and I became like a licensed a uh, seller of insurance <laughs> and uh, so what happened is I was like there's this one semester I was like man I cannot go back to school if I don't make money but I cannot make enough money if I just work I'm gonna make like a third of what I need and a friend of mine someone who I'd uh, liked at the time um, was like hey you wanna you wanna you wanna like come to this place uh you know I have an opportunity and I was like what was it what you mean opportunity I was like do you you like want to hang out? Do you like, like should I get our other friends or like, what are you talking about? What's an opportunity? She's like, no, no, yeah, just come. It's cool. You know, it's an opportunity, a bunch of dope people. You'll like it. Okay. I go there and it's one of these MLM things and I'm sitting there like, Oh my fucking God, I'm about to get like caught and trapped. Mm-hmm. But then I was like, you know what? Maybe, maybe i maybe I'm different. I can make it work. Uh, Cause I did canvassing. I'd done organizing. Like I got an idea of how to like cold approach people. Um, and it sucked. It's horrible, dude. It's not. It's not uh, fun. I made enough money to go back to school, but do. Oh my god, dude. That shit. Uh, if I was not already radicalized at that point, I would have turned into like one of those fucking rising grinders on LLC.
2: Twitter.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> hundred fifty dollars. You start an LLC. Then you apply for a PP loan. You got $5,000. Then you expense everything to your account and you get arrested by the IRS and the uh, FBI. Sir, to time. Uh, <laughs> this is the IRS. <laughs> Mad illegal. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, dude. Those. I love those people. I love MLAs. I love libertarians. I love objectivists because at the end of the day, the picture of humanity they have in their heads is just one that like we should use that and be like, no get away from me that is not what i want and it's yeah. not how we're going to organize people um, that's what
0: it is that's what all that that's that's the real innovation in these uh in these <laughs> companies, yes. companies uh is to take the pyramid scheme and put it on an app right i that's used to that-
1: dude they had this one thing where they would be like it's not a pyramid and then they i used to forget what they say it actually was but they're like see a pyramid is this this and they draw a pyramid and then they drew for us a tree and i remember one dude was like isn't that still in a pyramid shape and they kicked them out <laughs> no, no, they man. fucking kicked them out of the resort we had to go to like some fucking conference and they kicked them out of that shit for asking the question <laughs>
0: <laughs> no man it's not it's not a pyramid it's it's a it's a fucking it's a four-dimensional shape dude it, yeah. it, it's you, you got you so to yeah, get more galaxy brain. Yeah, you got to get more galaxy brain. That's that weaponization of entrepreneurship there. And, and so I, I think we'll rest our case there. Now, before I present the question to the jury of snuff it or save it, I, I think that we are reaching a point now in some of these concepts where there is something that is worth saving here, but it has become so corrupt in its modern sense, and it has become so weaponized by capital that it's really difficult to see how to disentangle the aspects of entrepreneurship that do get people to bite that apple, right? That idea of being able to have autonomy over your work, the idea of being able to not be alienated from the product of your labor, the idea of being able to make ends meet in a self-sustaining way, that is what's at the core of the entrepreneurial dream, but it has become covered in so much rot and so much toxic slime that I I think it's a hard question of if there's anything there to be rehabilitated um, or if we must simply sweep it all away and instead imagine a new concept, a new way of thinking, a new subjectivity that isn't so wrapped up. So I will now present our binary of snuff it or save it. What does the jury say? Guilty. Snuff. Snuff it, snuff <laughs> it. The good aspects there that I just laid out have become too rotten to the core. We can Rather reconstitute than try... them Ra- somewhere yeah. else. Exactly. Rather than trying to clean it off, instead, we should snuff the concept, cross it out on the conceptual hit list, and imagine new ways of making those kinds of dreams actually attainable for people within a radically different system.
1: Entrepreneurship is jejun. Well,
2: back to the old drawing
0: board. So we're reaching the mm-hmm. last concept that we will do for this episode with lots more on our conceptual hit list coming in the premium episode. So let's speed through flexibility, our That's next true. entrant on the con- on the conceptual hit list, also tied to ideas of entrepreneurship, but I think distinctly different. So flexibility, I mean this has become such a, a, a critical watchword for the gig platforms, the Ubers, the Lyfts, the DoorDashes, the Deliveroo's, et cetera, et cetera, right? Flexibility is the ultimate hope here, right? We can even see the, the way that they, they, they use it like a mantra, flexibility, flexibility. So if you guys remember the uh, New York Times op-ed, by uh, Dara Khosrowshahi, the CEO of Uber. He set out his vision for a new type of workplace built on the principle of ultimate flexibility. So he said in that op-ed, quote, our current employment system is outdated and unfair. It forces every worker to choose between being an employee with more benefits, but less flexibility, or an independent contractor with more flexibility, but almost no safety net. Now, Uber, In their disruptive and innovative mindset said, we know, we have a different model in mind where drivers for his platform are not employees of the company per se, but rather they're entrepreneurs, of course. But importantly, entrepreneurs who enjoy the freedom and flexibility to work whenever and wherever they please. Um, as long as they stay in the good graces of the platform. In exchange for things like labor rights and benefits, you know, they they get flexibility. Now, in reality, as we all know, and as we've talked about plenty of times on, on TMK, flexibility takes shape as a necessity to work all of the time just to make ends meet. But hey, at least it's your choice, your responsibility, your ability to realize your true potential and thrive, or maybe just survive or die. But that's the freedom of flexibility.
1: (laughs) Right, yeah, we're gonna call bullshit on that, as Jeremy (laughs) is telling us. Um, Flexibility, I think, is like a very interesting watchword, you know. This paper by um, Sanjukta Paul and um, Vina Dupal in, um, on labor. It's called uh, Law and the Future of Gig Work in California. You know, one of the things they tackle is this flexibility nonsense, right? The key argument of the flexibility or key implications are one, employee status means you lose flexibility, but that's not true, as we can talk about in a bit. And another is that gig work, piecework, Provide schedule flexibility, which it actually doesn't, right? We can quickly look at how gig work, even for Uber drivers. You know, I've written extensively about how, for example, and during even during the peak of the pandemic, but ongoing for months beforehand, Uber, Lyft, uh, Via had established a pretty strict quota system in New York City, which required you to hit a certain amount of trips to sign up for peak hours or non-peak hours, but basically to put in hours that you would do a shift for driving. Where's the flexibility in that You would have more mm-hmm. flexibility working a nine to five than in having to choose three disparate hours because you didn't hit the quota you'd have and choose to only be able to work 12 a.m. to 6 a.m and then again at uh, you know 8 p.m. to 10 pm uh, but no no more than that that's not not really clear how that's flexibility, right and also, as Veena has shown in her work extensively, especially with of uh, gig workers, you know, ride hail drivers in San Francisco um, in the 70s, 80s, and, you know, before this current, uh, this ongoing revolution uh, in, the, in the regulatory environment, the flexibility uh, meant that, uh, you know, taxi drivers had embraced long-term leases, which made them independent contractors because of the flexibility offered by these leases, right? But as she writes, absent wage protections, driver sta- uh, drivers state stabilized their income by lobbying municipal regulators around fares and vehicle caps. And as a result of a 1996 court decision, taxi workers in theory also had safety net benefits. That that security, the security they had, was not from flexibility as much as much as it was for them lobbying again municipal regulators. But what do gig workers have as an uh, as an option today? Uh, they have no, they have little to no control over the wages that they generate. They have little to no control over the, the benefits that they get if they lose the job. They don't have unemployment insurance. They have uh, subpar w- uh, compensation. Uh, they have horrible workers' comp, if any. Um, though, and uh, you know, as they go on to write, wages are frequently and unilaterally changed by companies. Wage calculation is opaque and unpredictable. Time spent working is highly structured by algorithms. And in some cases, customer tips are counted towards base pay. Where the fuck in that is flexibility. There's none. There's it flexibility is for a corporation to extract fees at any particular point of the transaction or of the, of the operation of uh, their platform. That's the real flexibility here. Agency and autonomy from uh, the, the rigor of a universal regulatory environment, right? Instead, you have a patchwork of exemptions, uh, and exception, exceptions and exemptions um, you know, it's just like a, it's a clever way of the, it's flexibility to just like, you know, exploit the workers. That's really what it comes mm-hmm. down to.
0: Exactly. Exactly. That is, that is the face is that the, the reality of flexibility is the, is flexibility by managers, managerial control by corporations to extract and exploit. That's where the real flexibility, uh, rest, right? They, it, again, it's this new speak where they promise flexibility for the workers, but in reality, what they mean, you know, they're, they're crossing their fingers when they say that, because in reality, what they mean is ultimate flexibility for us to dictate without saying that we're dictating how and when you work. You know, as Vina said, it's, it's all just clever lawyering, right? It's all uh, using this language of flexibility and of entrepreneurship and of innovation to uh, exploit loopholes, legal loopholes, until they can just pass new laws where they don't have to exploit loopholes anymore because they've enshrined in law, their conception of flexibility. I Over the holidays, I read, and should I, I'll, I'll be having a, a review of this book coming out um, in, in a few weeks, I think, but it's this great book by Alex Wood, called "Despotism on Demand: How Power Operates in the Flexible Workplace." Now, what he shows in this in this book, which is a really in-depth and extended ethnography of uh, of, of, of how the workplace functions and of managerial power and control um, in big box retailers. So here, with you, you know, he's talking about. Walmarts and Targets and then like Tesco, right? Like these big box like supermarkets. And what he what he shows in this book is that managers use and have weaponized flexible scheduling as a tool to exert um, either despotic control over workers entire lives, right? They're completely collapsing any notion of a work-life balance it's work on demand and or you know and then also to exert this kind of discipline to create a kind of a subjugated subjectivity a subjugated person who has to beg and plead with their manager for some hours right or to change their hours but they also don't know their hours until maybe a week ahead of time right so they're So their work time is constantly changing. Now, on the face of it, this looks like the complete opposite of something like Uber or Lyft, which promises you no manager telling you when and where you have to work. That promises you no set hours. You make your own hours. There's no schedule. You create your own schedule around your own life. But in reality, this kind of flexible power by managers, whether it's a uh, uh, you know, some mid-level manager at Walmart or the algorithm. In reality, this power operates in the same exact way. It's just one company, one industry is mm-hmm. using language around flexibility to mask this managerial control, whereas other uh, industries, these big box retailers, don't even feel like they need to use that kind of feel-good language uh, or, or that newspeak. They said, "No, this is this is just this is the terms of your employment." What we see here is not an evolution in the ways in which managers and and workers experience flexibility, but instead an evolution or a change in the way that they talk about flexibility. But the reality of it is still exactly the same. Uber is simply innovating on top of the kind of flexible power that walmart and target and these companies have have originated and have perfected over decades
1: all these myths end up being ways in which we should think of them as tips they're trying to realize a certain political economy right they're trying to realize a certain arrangement between legal legal norms and uh whether that's through regulations or whether that's through court decisions, they're trying to realize certain things through economic arrangements, through labor arrangements, through political decisions that uh, are, in one way or another, prioritizing capital accumulation or allowing them to be vectors for capital accumulation. And all these myths are, are in one way or another like, you know, tools to achieve that. That world, you know, as dominated by capital as this word is, it it is not enough for these companies, right? And they need, for tech companies, for a lot of Silicon Valley companies, they need a different regulatory environment. They need a different cultural uh, context, right? They need a different political system. They need a different market. They need all, they need different relations between workers and bosses to really take off, to really drive, to really dominate, to really be unchallengeable and unable to be usurped. And the way to do that, one of the most reliable ways to do that is are these myths, these legitimacy narratives, because uh, you can use these to lobby regulators. You can use these to mobilize the public. You can use these to condition workers and you can use these to condition consumers. Right. And if you Mm -hmm. can do all of that, uh, then it makes it that much easier to achieve your ends when pitching various factions to act in one way or another that benefits you.
2: I would think one of the unintended consequences that retailers like middle management, tyrants that like to control people's lives through scheduling and you know not giving someone a routine schedule every week, uh, changing things last second, moving stuff around and just all in all making life difficult for the worker... In a way, kind of radicalize workers to hate their bosses. So when Uber comes along, saying, "Don't you hate your boss? Don't you uh, don't you want to be your own boss? Don't you want the flexibility to work whenever you want to?" Not realizing that those Friday and Saturday nights you're going to be working, unless you don't want to make any money. You know, you're mm-hmm. losing you're losing a lot more of your life with these apps than you realize. I'm not, and now I'm not saying it's better to work for walmart than it is for uber because all of them are, are fucking garbage and and none of those places should be able to hire and treat workers the way they do but you know they did a they did their job in making people realize that you know what i don't need a boss i want to be my own boss and then platforms came around and it fucking blew up
0: that that is a fantastic point is that 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 is something that these platforms that the uber et al have done really really well is to channel that anger and hatred that people have of the petty tyrants at these restaurants and retailers who control their life. And then they come in with a soft voice and promises of freedom and flexibility and autonomy only to trap you in the same exact kinds of structures, of power and of work. And that, 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 is, that is the weaponization of flexibility in effect right there. Right. That That is really great. To bring this to a close in this session of the conceptual hit list, I do want to present an argument before we decide if we snuff it or save it. That flexibility has a role. That flexibility is something that we should be striving to achieve. It's a goal for workers to have that flexibility and the autonomy over their own lives And over their own work that comes with that flexibility and we can regulate we can change we can through labor movements enact rights for that kind of flexibility not in a way that uber says where we need a totally different model where it's you know somehow the dialectical synthesis between employee and independent contractor which is all bullshit, right Mm -hmm. we can have the rights of employment while also within those rights and benefits, having flexibility as a key role to play, right? Whether that means having more sick days, more holiday time, more say over when and how you work, right? These are things that are imminently achievable goals. They are goals that are wrapped up in Actualizing the promise of flexibility, real flexibility, not this corrupted version, this weaponized version of flexibility, not succumbing to the flexible power of managers, of petty tyrants, having a say in you know over your over your work schedule, and not that that bullshit flexibility that the platforms promise, but never actually materialize, never actually pay up on. We can have real worker autonomy that actualizes these ideals of flexibility this is a possibility so with that said flexibility do we snuff it or do we save it I vote save it
2: Jeremy what do you state what do you say I, I agree with you that I feel like that there's a place for it you know having the ability to decide your own work schedule you know you you create more you're more productive. Um, when you're, you find yourself in workflow states more often when you have the ability to create your own schedule. God damn it, Susan, at 2.30 in the afternoon, I may may not feel like working that hard. However, It's right. 6 a.m., I feel like I can crank four or five hours of flow workout, but I'm not at work at 6 a.m. Everybody's great- productivity levels are at different times of the day.
0: This is a great point as well is that there is an argument to be made for flexibility on the terms of capital in terms Mm. of productivity and efficiency. But what it reveals in in not wanting to grant that flexibility is that what they value more so is control over labor, Not not necessarily increased productivity, but increased control and power. And that's what flexibility reveals. It reveals that profit is not the sole motivation of capital. Power is also a prime motivation of capital. And I agree with Jeremy. I I say we save flexibility. This, this, This concept has not been so corrupted that it's not able to be rehabilitated and actualized in a real way. Ed, what say you? Do we have a hung jury or a consensus?
1: Uh, we, I'm all about consensus, baby. Let's do it. Uh, flexibility is dead long live flexibility. Kill the corporate version, let the worker version live forever. Exactly.
0: Hell yeah. So this has been one half of our conceptual <laughs> hit list for TMK. We have other concepts that we will be going through in detail uh, in the premium episode where you can get that later this week patreon.com slash this machine kills. Um, just a little bit of a, of a preview. Some of the other concepts that we'll be taking aim at uh, later this week is, so we'll be looking at inclusion. We'll be looking at the concept of the tech company, the technology company. Uh, and then we'll we'll get a little bit more technological in our concepts. And we'll be looking at things like artificial intelligence, smart algorithm. These are other concepts that we will be we will be putting in front of the people's jury we'll be throwing them up against the wall of ruthless criticism
1: (laughs) it'll be good it'll be good
0: it'll be good so join us there for a continuation of the conceptual hit list Um, and until then thank you all for listening and we'll see you later in the week